It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian, Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and my guest this hour is, um, let me see if I get this, uh, see if I can find this um, info right. I've got I've got so many notes, I can't find the ones I'm looking for. <laughs> he is, um, well, darn it. Well, we'll just, oh, there it is. Um, he is professor of sociology at California State Polytechnic University in Pomona, and um, he has a new book. It's uh, called Brown and Gay in L.A., and it is a collection of uh, stories of young men who exist at the margins of immigration, race, and LGBTQ issues. His name is Anthony Christian Ocampo, and he joins me by phone. Anthony, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning. It's so great to be here. Um, let me, you know, for most of the... Most of the country would think that of all the places in the country and possibly the world that you would want to be if you were brown and gay would be L.A. Is that not quite so much true? Yeah, in a lot of ways, Los Angeles has been a utopia for gay people all across the country and all across the world for several generations. So back in the day, in the early 20th century, there were a lot of um, gay communities that popped up in L.A. because relative to, you know, small towns or more conservative communities, it was it was considered more of a safe space. Um, despite that, as you know, any place, whether it's L.A. or New York or London, these are places where there's a whole lot of people. When you have a whole lot of people, inevitably there's going to be inequalities that emerge. And as you know, um, in the city of Los Angeles, there's a tremendous amount of racial diversity because of immigration. And not all immigrants come with the same um, set of resources and, and capital. And so it, it, it happens to be the case that a lot of the young men I interviewed come from you know, working class backgrounds, low income backgrounds. There were some that are middle class, of course, but class diversity was 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 pretty pretty wide. You know, another thing that that occurred to me is is the title of your book, "Brown and Gay in L.A.: The Lives of Immigrant Sons." Um, is is being both brown and gay a double whammy? 
You know, I think that growing up, so I'm someone that happens to fit these identities. I, I, I had moments in which I thought that it was a double whammy, right? We all know that the U.S. Um, is a predominantly white society. It's been, for the most part, um, white folks at the top, people of color at the bottom. So um, when, it, when it comes to being brown, that could be disadvantageous in a lot of arenas, from schools to the workplace to, you know, just everyday life. And then, of course, as you know, being gay is, is a challenge to say the least. Um, you don't really grow up with a whole lot of role models in your family or on television or in movies that are gay. And so um, and in a lot of arenas, such as say like the Catholic church being gay is seen as um, at worst uh, an abomination. And so it's really difficult to, to just exist with these two identities that happen to be marginalized in a number of different arenas. Uh, with that said, I think what I've learned over the course of doing the research for this book and writing this book and just coming into my own as a queer person of color is that those those aren't so much, they don't have to be double whammies. They can actually be mechanisms for building community, for building social movements, um, for empowering other people. And so that's the, I think that's the journey that folks go on when they read this book is you, you sort of assume that these are stigmatized identities, but by the end, I hope you can see how these are beautiful identities that can help us reimagine what the country or what the world can be. You know, I, I have to admit, Anthony, when I first saw the title of the book, two things, two questions popped into my mind. One is, could the same book be written um, under the title Black and Gay in L.A.? And is there... Does does white and gay in L.A. still enjoy white privilege? Yeah, those are two great questions. I think that when it comes to, say, like, if there was another book called Black and Gay in L.A., I think you'd find a lot of similarities in that um, black folks like, like um, Latinos and Filipinos experience some of the same... Um, racial discrimination that might happen in, say, schools. Of course, the experience of black folks is unique because of the legacy of slavery, and I don't want to say they're exactly the same. But when it comes to feeling decentered or stereotyped or seen in, in one-dimensional ways, I think that that's something that brown folks and black folks can understand in, in a similar way. Uh, of course, what's also different is that with the with the young men that I was interviewing, sometimes the way they had to navigate identity was not just in the context of Los Angeles, but also in the context of their home country. So there was a lot of um, young men that I interviewed who were very much connected to the Philippines or Mexico, either through home visits or through, you know, the ability to virtually interact with folks on Skype or, or telephone. And that meant they had to know the rules of masculinity or the rules of gender in two different places. And so I think that's one, you know, um, subtle difference that, that emerges between um, Filipinos, Latinos versus Afri like native-born African-Americans. Of course, when it comes to, say, like, black folks in L.A. who are Nigerian and their parents are immigrants, there's going to be very, very similar things. But, again... Um, this is a situation where I think being a person of color can yield comparable experiences in school, the workplace, everyday life, etc. Uh, when it comes to white folks 
who also happen to be gay in L.A., I think there's a lot of ways in which they're still privileged. I, I mean, if you ever go to the main neighborhood, which is West Hollywood, California, first of all, <laughs> it's this incredibly... <laughs> Weeho! Weeho, <laughs> you, know you know the lingo, yeah. <laughs> but, um, and, and to Weeho's credit, it is a place where gay people historically were able to exist freely, hold hands with each other, and, and show PDA without fear. But at the same time, like the WeHo today, is, it, it's not a perfect utopia. It's still the case that it's extremely expensive to live in. Um, the r- typical rent there is twice to three times as much that of like your average um, neighborhood that's predominantly people of color. And on a different level, when it comes to to desirability, who's considered attractive, who's considered, you know, the, the folks that are running the show, the parties, the bars, a lot of times that those those folks are still predominantly white. There's this really great um, sociologist by the name of Jason Orne who, who comes up with this concept called sexual racism, which is this idea that, like, certain like, people of color, gay men of color, are either exoticized or excluded, but they can't be much more than that because of the way they're not seen beyond their their racial identity. Is, you know, getting back to um, uh, talking about the double whammy, um, culturally, um, our, our brown communities historically as anti-gay as black communities have been? You know, I think that there's this... So I, I want to push back a little bit on that. I think there's... I, this, please, there's please this. do. You know, if I've, gotten, <laughs> if I've gotten a wrong impression, that's exactly why we're having this conversation. Yeah, I, I think... And to, to your point, a lot of the, the young men of color that I interviewed had the same belief that, like white communities are more accepting of gay people or they're more enlightened about when it comes to gay issues or more progressive, whereas... Um, oh, let's just say more know, tolerant. More tolerant, and then in communities of color, it's more stigmatized. But I think that it's a little bit more, more nuanced than that. So, for example, like in the Filipino case, there's been a, a long history of, like, queer family members being part of the family and and being on, you know, Philippine television, and they were, you know, not necessarily on the same footing as, like, um, straight folks, but, you know, well-regarded, well-loved, um, and I'm sure the same is case. In a lot of ways, there's similar things that are happening in Latin America, depending on where we're talking about. Um, but there were, I think that one of the main difficulties that emerged when looking at white gay folks and the queer folks of color that I interviewed is that because of their racial marginalization or racial minority status, um, a lot of the the men that I interviewed felt like anything that they did, good or bad, was a reflection of their parents, their immigrant parents, their community, their racial group, population. And that's a burden that... um, white folks don't necessarily have to carry because they're the dominant group. And I think that um, what that does, it means it can put a lot of pressure 
on gay men of color have to be twice as good. I mean, there's that saying among in black communities that you have to be twice as good to go half as far. And I think that that was an ethos that was very much embraced um, among a lot of the young men that I interviewed. This is a little bit parenthetical, um, just kind of a sidebar to our conversation. I want to get back to your findings in the book after this. But is the U.S. more or less tolerant toward gays um, than most, if not all, countries, uh, other countries around the world? That's a really good question. Are there I places that are that are friendlier or more tolerant of gays than the U.S., or is uh, the U.S. the best place to go to try and be who you are? And I think that there's um, the perception that the U.S. is the place to go if you're, you know, experiencing homophobia or transphobia in your home country. And, and definitely, like, when you read other books about um, gay immigrants, um, there's this great sociologist at Northwestern, Hector Carrillo, that talks about how a lot of Mexican men migrated to the U.S. because they wanted to be, you know, live their full lives here in the United States as gay men, and they couldn't do that in Mexico. Um, with that said, I think that it's very, um, in a lot of ways, regionally defined, right? If, if I was a if I'm a if I'm a queer kid in that's growing up in for for those that don't may not know like LA is a really big city right um, if I'm a young gay kid that's growing up in say <laughs> like Northeast LA or or um, or Los Feliz I imagine that there's going to be other queer kids or parents or, or kids with queer parents that are going there that's just sort of a trend but in other parts of Southern California, say like, um, like more conservative settings, like the Inland Empire, it could be a totally different story. Even for myself, like I noticed that for me, whenever I'm live, whenever I'm in say like downtown LA, which isn't necessarily a neighborhood per se, I often find myself more comfortable doing like public displays of affection or holding hands with my partner in ways that I don't necessarily feel as comfortable, say, in, like, certain suburban areas. <laughs> uh, and, of course, as with the United States, it's a big country, right? So I think, like, if we're talking Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, those are really great places to be. But if I was a, a young gay kid in, say, the state of Florida, uh, I can't imagine what I'd be going through in that at this moment in time. More about being brown and gay in L.A. from sociology uh, professor and author Anthony Ocampo. Tom Sumner, Program.com Tom Sumner, Program.com the 
everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just, um, attorney general stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen... We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. 
I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More about being brown and gay in L.A. from sociology uh, professor and author Anthony Ocampo, straight ahead. Doesn't Hollywood sort of distort the impression to the rest of the world about maybe how uh, perhaps um, gay and racially uh, friendly California might be? <laughs> Uh, I think so. I think that, I mean, it's Hollywood, right? <laughs> it exaggerates everything. Uh, and I'm a Los Angelino at heart, so I grew up in L.A. and um, lived my whole life here. So in a lot of ways... Well, I, I saw a comedian, I saw a comedian once, Anthony, that, that said he, w- he was one of these uh, comedians like a Don Rickles who, you know, bashed different groups and um, he's he got to the end of his set and he said, you'll notice... Um, I didn't, I didn't make fun of any Jews or homosexuals, and he said, "That's because I know who runs show business, and I'd like to stay in it a little while." Um, <laughs> and and you know, I mean, it it was a silly notion, and you know, and I get the humor in it, but but I wonder if there isn't something to that that certain groups are attracted to, as they call it in L.A., the business. And and if, as such, they don't uh, green light some projects that give a little bit more positive um, exposure to these concepts than maybe the community does. Yeah, I think that it, in a show, like, there's, I don't see that there's much incentive by, by like, showrunners or folks that make movies to talk about like the everyday mundane experiences of, of gay people. I think that's where... Um, no, that's for books. That's, why, <laughs> <laughs> that's for books, yes. Being able to be mundane, the magnificence in the mundane is like my, my thing with books these days. But I mean, for the most part, you don't have a lot of shows like Shit's Creek where it's almost as if they live in a town that's like... Where clearly David, one of the, the son and the, the, the gay son in that show is he's gone through some stuff in his life because he's gay. But uh, for the most part, it's like several seasons of shows where his, his being gay is not made an issue. And it's sort of, it's a show that helps us reimagine uh, what a family or a town could look like when being gay is not automatically seen as a stigmatized identity. But for the most part, I think you're right that a lot of the, um, a lot of the shows that are about gay people or even people of color and, you know, the rare shows that are about folks that live at the intersections of being gay and um, race, like at the intersection of racism and, homo- and hetero- heteronormativity, it's still the case that it fits the binary of, like, tragedy versus triumph, right? I feel like the the ability for shows to render everything in between is, is pretty limited. And I don't know if that's just a product of... of the people who control television just want there to be like that typical storyline that where there's conflict resolution and then, you know, the story ends. 
What do you think? <laughs> well, I, I, that's why I raised the question because I, I think, um, you know, there there is something to that. There is also something trending. You said when we first started talking that, um, you know, that, that it could be very stigmatizing to be gay and or brown. Mm-hmm. But... And and that that's been historically the case, but I wonder if that isn't changing a little bit. Oh, I think it's definitely it's definitely changing. Um, and for, I, think I mean, it seems like the change has has um, been been uh, accelerating exponentially since the acceptance of same sex marriage. Yes. I think so, too. So I think that, like, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s, and so the only thing that gay meant back then was the AIDS epidemic. That was pretty much the only storyline that I ever saw. About that's what, yeah, that's what, that's what was getting the headlines. Yeah, um, and maybe I think, maybe I watched The Birdcage or something. <laughs> well, you know, I thought, I thought briefly... <laughs> I thought briefly we were gonna we were gonna live that all over again with monkeypox. Oh my gosh! I know, I know. It's I, very... I mean, just in the in the original, you know, the first few reportings about it, I, I thought, oh boy, are are they headed in that direction with this? And fortunately, that's not the case. Fortunately, it's not, and I think that. And obviously, the monkeypox reaction could be much better. It can be more publicly acknowledged. Like there are doctors who don't know anything about monkeypox. <laughs> when like I've heard a lot of gay friends that have gone to the doctor and been like, "I don't know what's going on," and the doctor has like no clue that monkeypox exists. But I mean, it's not the time of Reagan where they they literally just ignored <laughs> the, like what was going on um, right in front of their eyes. But um, but yeah, I do think it's getting better. As I, as I mentioned, like I grew up at a time when being gay was equated with the AIDS epidemic, and nowadays I feel like, especially post same sex marriage, there's a ton more representations of gay folks on TV. And I think for like people like my parents, right, who who didn't necessarily have much exposure to gay folks um, on you know on screen. A lot of times, the the people, whenever we started to have conversations about my own sexuality or my desire to date or whatever, um, they often reference gay figures on television. I mean, like books like Ellen DeGeneres or, um, I'm trying to think, like, I can't think of someone right now, like Neil Patrick Harris, for example, uh, would be someone that they, they, they might have mentioned as like, oh, they're living their best life as a gay person. I think that, like, Gay marriage show. Well, what about the the television show uh, Will and Grace, which was a little bit ahead of its time? Will and Grace was definitely ahead of its time. I think that was also a really um, powerful show. And, and what's funny is that a lot of the a lot of the men that I interviewed that grew up as teenagers or young adults when Will and Grace was on, um, one in particular, for example, would literally put Will and Grace on TV while his family was having dinner just so it would play so that it would sort of, it would it would be an opportunity for his mom or his siblings to see gay people beyond just um, you know whatever stereotypes they had in their heads he w- he wanted to be the normal one in the room actually that's what <laughs> happened when he was coming out of the closet to his mother he reassured her <laughs> Mom, I'm more like um, Will, 
which for folks that don't know the show was like the the person with the career, the lawyer often was, you know, aspiring to have a long-term relationship. And he was like, I'm not like Jack. Jack is a more flamboyant, promiscuous, uh, jobless, aspiring actor. Um, and I think that that was really, that was one of the things that I found really interesting was how when it came to come the coming out experiences, a lot of the men would do this thing where they tried to prove to their family, their straight friends, that they were the good kind of gay, not the <laughs> stereotypical kind of gay. Oh, that's funny. Like, there's a good and bad kind of gay. Um, let's let's talk about um, some more of the people that you had a chance to interview for your book. Um, and, yeah. and first, if you could, Anthony, put in perspective, um, you know, sort of a synopsis of the book. It, it's, it's a collection of stories, is it not? It is. It is. It's not a, a book where, like, each chapter is dedicated to one person it's more um the way it goes is it's it's following it's sort of like developmental in the sense that the early chapter is about what it's like growing up as a child that's gay and then the you know the experiences of being in middle school and high school and then college and then young adulthood so i kind of use the stories as a way to talk about those stages in life and, and so you had doing, you had what a, a, a certain number of people that I, you, yeah, I that you them. used I ten or twelve or something, and then and then you explored these different developmental areas with all of them and included some of the the highlights or or how did how did you do that part of it? Yeah, I I, I interviewed about six sixty individuals um some were filipino americans some were mexican american others were like salvadoran american but pretty much a lot of my interviews went something like this i would you know we'd go to a coffee shop or a cafe and then um i wouldn't from the like right out of the gate be like what's it like to be gay right we kind of just hung out and I, i asked them you know what was it like growing up in whatever neighborhood they're from and oftentimes their first framing of their lives was through the lens of their ethnic identity so uh, you know this is what my childhood was like and it was very tied to say like mexican culture or filipino culture um or filipino family and it wasn't until say like the times we started talking about junior high school um and high school that they really started to organically bring up the topic of sexuality a lot of them said I kind of knew when I was at age five or six, but when it came to the stories that they had, it was really in their um, junior high years that that, the, that being gay started to, quote-unquote, become a problem. But isn't that sort of um, where all young people start coming of age sexually? Uh, that, that, that's actually the driving force, right? So when you're in fifth or sixth grade and you're, your classmates are starting to starting to talk about oh who you you know who do you have a crush on who 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 do you like who do you want to bring to the dance those were the the watershed moments for gay people because they couldn't necessarily participate in those that banter or or that um those conversations without knowing that there was something disingenuous or or there was something um 
simmering under the surface that they just may not have the language for. And then, of course, as they get older into high school, where boys are inevitably exposed to a whole lot of locker room talk, where the type of language that, that boys use are is much more sexually overt. Like, who do you want to... Can, can you cuss on this show? <laughs> who do you want to ask or who do you want to, like... Um, like it gets really sexual. Um, if for anyone that wants to read a good book about how um, this is the case, I recommend this writer, C.J. Pasco. She's she's a professor at University of Oregon who writes all about masculinity in high school. But the point is, um, when it comes to the rituals of everyday life for 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 teenager preteens and teenagers, a lot of those rituals are super heterosexual in nature. And so what it means is that slowly but surely the fact that these young men are queer or questioning or even acknowledging that they're gay means that they start to have to um, kind of embody what Du Bois might call a double consciousness. Of course, he was referring to black people in the white society, but in some ways there was this idea that you had to, um, you were gay, but you had to navigate your way through the straight world. We're, I, I can't believe how fast this time is going. Um, oh my gosh, it's over? <laughs> no, 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 no. We've still got a few minutes, but, but a very few minutes um, comparatively. The um, name of the book is Brown and Gay in L.A., The Lives of Immigrant Sons. Um, and uh, the author is uh, professor of sociology at California State. Uh, Polytechnic University in Pomona, Anthony Acampo. Um, Anthony, one of the things as I was reading about this is, you know, if it's what is special about being second generation Americans? Mm. Yeah, second generation is this um, broad category that includes anyone that's been born in the United States, but they have one or both parents were born a different, in a different country. And I think what's, what's special about that identity is that it almost constantly feels like you're living in two worlds because you're, you live with, you're raised by parents or even like grandparents or other relatives that were socialized with the norms of the home country back in some town in Mexico or some province in the Philippines or city or whatever. Um, and then you get to the United States, and you're the one who has has been indoctrinated with the ways of life of the U.S. way faster than, say, immigrant parents who might be, you know, sort of adjusting to life culturally, linguistically. So well, I remember, uh, it, I remember having friends when I was young, and I'm a pretty old guy now, Anthony, but. Um, you know, back in the late 60s and, and early 70s uh, up to about 1980, um, having friends who had Mexican parents and Spanish was still speak, being spoken at home. And I, I remember I used to get the biggest kick out of and would often, rightly or wrongly, you know, poke fun at, at them a little bit because they would call home and there would be two words in English, hello and goodbye, and the rest would all be in Spanish. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the, a lot of these, like, second-generation folks are, are super bilingual by, by necessity. You've, you've, because... heard those, you've heard those conversations, I'm sure. 
Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And that's definitely the case with a lot of my Mexican-American friends, the, the Mexican-American folks I interviewed. Also, the other Asian-American friends. With Filipinos, it's a little different because <laughs> in the Philippines, the language of instruction is English. So, for example, like, my parents have been speaking English since they were children, <laughs> even though they grew up there. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, it is the case that, like, a lot of my friends who are children of immigrants have to know both languages because they're what it is called the language broker between their parents and say native born folks in the United States. So a lot of these second generation folks have experiences of being the translator for their parents when they go to the PTA meetings or the doctor, or they need to talk to, you know, someone on the phone, the parents, the kids from a young age will be the one doing the adult kind of work because their parents don't have access to English in the same way that they do. That's interesting because uh, my my father um, had uh, both of his parents were deaf. Oh wow! But so he could Dakota. speak, and he talked with, um, you know, he he knew sign language, and uh, they they were not deaf from birth it, they both suffered accidents as young children and were caused to become deaf and he used to have to do that he used to have to interpret for them because he could speak and then speak sign language with them and it wasn't as common back this would have been in the 20s and 30s um, as as it as it is now for people to know sign language and it's it's the same kind of thing getting young people to grow up a little bit before their time um, mm-hmm. to step in and, and interpret for their parents yeah there's that movie that won best picture of the Oscars last year Coda which is about a child of deaf parents and she's the only hearing person in her in her family when I watched that movie um, I think it was really emotional for me not just because of the storyline, but it was emotional because I felt there were so many similarities between what it meant to be um, that, like, meant to be the person that had to translate for your parents in different contexts, or like you said, grow up before your time. I, I think that for me, I didn't experience that in the same way because, again, my parents um, were able to speak English um, long before they migrated to this country, but right. it, it, it's, it's definitely the case when you compare the story side by side of, of of um, children of deaf parents and and children of immigrants whose parents don't speak English, I could definitely see that there would be some overlap there. Well, it it just it struck a chord with me that that you know there was a situation in my family that was very similar, um, despite the fact that you know we've been um, for generations born in this country. Um, but let me. Um, we we we've got to start wrapping this up, and I'm having such a good time talking with you, Anthony. <laughs> and this is such a, a great and important subject. Um, once again, the book is Brown and Gay in L.A., and and it reminds me a little bit of a, a interview I did a few months ago with someone from Texas uh, who'd written a book called Driving While Brown. Oh wow! <laughs> I, I've seen that book actually on the shelves. Yeah, it's 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 pretty interesting actually. Um but l- let's um 
let, let me do this. This is not your first book, and I'm guessing it won't be your last. Um, do you have any idea what's uh, if there's another book on the horizon for you, Anthony? Yeah, I'm starting uh, literally at before and after this um, conversation. I'm working on that third book, which is about um, Asian American experiences in the criminal justice system. Mm. Um, part of it is really motivated because of a lot of the anti-Asian hate that we've been witnessing and, of course, the the huge conversations about the criminal justice system and race and law enforcement. So I thought it's so interesting that these two these two topics are not often spoken about in conjunction with each other. So, yeah, that was, that was the idea um, for the next book. Um, and I think in some ways it'll it's been a challenging experiences because a lot of the research and the books that are out there, when they talk about race and the criminal justice system, overwhelmingly it's focusing on black folks, Latinx folks, maybe indigenous folks, but it is a needle in a haystack to find um, <laughs> like resources when it comes to talking about um, Asian Americans in the criminal justice system. I think because a lot of folks still believe Asians are like, model minorities and so they don't experience anything related to crime or or criminality oh they're just intimidated because they're good at math yeah exactly right (laughs) and and i'm being facetious (laughs) i'm of course course. um my guest is anthony acampo author of brown and gay in la he is also a professor of sociology at california state polytechnic and um Anthony, I I really appreciate you spending this time with me and the listeners. I feel like we've just scratched the surface. So I always want to give uh, guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they might find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website you'd like to share? I do. It's really easy. It's just anthonyocampo.com. And what you'll see there is that at the heart of it, yeah, I'm a college professor, but really... Everything you'll see there shows that uh, what I care most about is storytelling. I think storytelling, as as we've revealed in our convo, has the potential to bridge people across difference in ways that I think are really gorgeous. But yeah, you can find me at anthonyocampo.com. I'm on Twitter, at Anthony Ocampo. Um, and so, yeah, feel free to follow me and, and reach out. I would love to hear from folks. Well, Anthony, thanks again. And by all means, keep up the good work. Thank you so much. This was amazing. You have amazing questions. <laughs> well, it's an amazing topic, and and, uh, and and you were very kind to share with me. Um, so with that uh, being said, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. <laughs>
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all-night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. May cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! 
from the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is your Hollywood reporter, Don Hinckley, at the premiere of what is probably the most talked about motion picture of all time, the story of the great love between the handsome Roman general and the Egyptian queen. We're hoping to interview the beautiful star of this epic. And, oh, I, I, I think we're in luck. Yes, yes. We are in luck. Here comes that great beauty now. Excuse me, would you like to say hello to your millions of fans? My name, Jose Jimenez. <laughs> hello to your millions of fans. Of course, uh, everyone here knows the name of your picture, but I'm sure you'd like to mention it again. The name of my picture is Digit Goes Egyptian. <laughs> I always thought the uh, title of the picture was Cleopatra. Oh, no, no, no. Cleopatra is the name of our coming attraction. <laughs> coming attraction? That's right. Well, that picture cost $40 million. That's nothing. I was cost $100,000. Well, that's not so much. For a ticket? <laughs> you, do you mean that you're charging $100,000 for one ticket? Why, I couldn't afford to see that picture. Would you like a free pass? <laughs> yes, I would. That'll be $10,000. How much did the picture actually cost to make? Including lunches. Why, why should lunches be so expensive? Do you know what it costs to smuggle corned beef into Egypt? I guess costumes uh, must have cost you a fortune. Oh, costumes, my goodness. They... Costumes alone cost $50 million. I imagine uh, Cleopatra's costume was the most expensive. No, there we save money. <laughs> Eight yards of saran wrap and some beads was all, all didn't, we needed for that. Didn't they uh, try to save money at all? Yes, we tried to save money at all. For example, one time we had this thing, you know, that was going on in a beautiful alabaster hall. And we had 30,000 dancing girls running around. And we had 20,000 musician people playing golden harps. And we had 40,000 slave girls pouring wine. Well, how did that save money? We used paper cups. <laughs> uh... That must have been the famous orgy scene? No, that was the famous coffee break. That's fantastic. Yeah, we swung on a set there. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I gotta tell you one thing, that the picture has a surprised ending, so nobody will be seated during the last five hours. Well, it's obviously a very long movie, but uh, yes. do you plan to have intermissions? Yes, one intermission, Wednesday. <laughs> You guys can take Wednesday off. You mean the show lasts a whole week? Yes, if you see the cartoon. Cartoon? Yes, Ben-Hur. <laughs> Mickey Mouse plays Ben and Minnie plays her. Exactly how long have you been uh, working on this picture? Well, quite a while, because we had a delay one time. We had to lay off on a kind of the noise. What noise? World War II. 
We had those tiger tanks going there. We were strafed. It was really terrible. And then it was these guys with the pointed helmets. Jose. <laughs> Maybe it was World War One, man. <laughs> Sir, let's talk about your co-star's salary. I understand it's an astronomical figure. She certainly has. <laughs> I, you I, noticed that, yeah, huh? I'm talking about I'm her salary. I'm glad to see her observe. Oh, you're her salary. Yes. Yes, yes. Well, you talk about what you want to talk about, and I'll talk about what I want. I understand that she makes eight thousand dollars a day now that's more than most people isn't make in a year some, isn't that something eight thousand dollars a day yeah it's a lot of boy, money sure. but is she really happy boy is she happy <laughs> <laughs> you never heard such giggling in your life it comes from that girl on payday you can hear it all the way across the street but, jose yes money doesn't buy happiness. No, but for $8,000 a day, you could rent it. <laughs> now that you've mentioned your beautiful co-star, I wonder if you'd answer the question the whole world is asking. I would be delighted to, as long as they don't ask it at once. <laughs> Let them ask you one at a time. Let's start with India, if you right. like. There's a lot of people over there. The question is... Yes. Are you going to marry your co-star? I would have to say it this time and you can quote me on this and I don't care if you quote me word for word and even better. <laughs> I will marry the woman I love. You will? I always do. <laughs> I don't know what I could tell you about how much I love her. I would climb the top of the highest mountain. I would crawl on my little belly across all the desert and the hot desert, and I would go across the most ragging rivers for her. When will you see her next? Tonight, if it doesn't rain. <laughs> Listen, you know, I got my good toga on. I don't want to spoil Jose, what would you say was your biggest problem in the picture? I would say my biggest problem in the picture was the asp. The uh, asp? Yes. You mean the snake? Yes, the snake asp, yes. <laughs> you see, that is snake had to come around and hug Cleopatra real tight and coil around her and come up and bite her right on the neck, you see? And it was my job to teach that asp how to do that. So, so, so what's wrong with that? He got it right the first time. I told him nobody likes a smart asp. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Each morning I get up 
touch that dial, you're listening to Tom Sumner. Tom Sumner. 